Well, being a guest speaker, I'm going to guess that I have the liberty of preaching as long as I want, although I have to see all of you next week. It's all right. So I'm going to take that liberty this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 1. And as you're doing that, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1 will begin in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for these words of encouragement. Father, I pray that this portion of text is not merely an intellectual ascent of of the person of who Jesus is, but this is radically lived out in our lives each and every day. That we would behold the greatness of our Savior and the things of this world would pale in comparison to his infinite value and glory. Father, speak your words into our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are some really beautiful and grand aspects of our universe. I recently heard of this flower in some jungle that has poisonous water in the middle of its petals. And these petals are very slippery so that when a bug crawls up onto the petal, he loses his grip, he slips and he falls down into this pool of poisonous water and he dies. But what is really cool is that there is this spider that only survives... Because it weaves a line down where he drops down right above and hovers above this poisonous pool of death. And he plucks the bug out of there and eats it. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Try to imagine with me for just a moment a star that is so big that it would fill our entire solar system with within the orbit of Earth, which is 93 million miles from the sun. A star so turbulent that its eruptions would spread a cloud of gases spanning four light years. A star that is so powerful that it glows with the energy of 10 million suns, making it the brightest star to ever be observed in our galaxy. Actually, 
a star so big and so bright and so grand should be unimaginable according to the theories of star formation. And yet there it is, right near the center of the Milky Way. Did you know that there are more than 350 billion galaxies that are just now being discovered from the likes of the Hubble telescope? What about the caterpillar who has 228 individual muscles in its head alone? Or have you seen the beauty and the grandeur of snow-covered mountains. It doesn't get much better than that. What a wonderful creation that we live in. And yet in 2007, British atheist Christopher Hitchens published his book, God is Not Great. And in his arrogance and pride, Hitchens asserts that God is not great because everything that we see in the world and in the universe came out of nothing. It was by sheer chance that it happened. And there are many people today who would have us to believe that this is all just, all of this just came into being a sort of cosmic explosion and beauty and grandeur and unimaginable power just came out of murky waters to its existence today. But today, I would beg to differ. Today, I want you to see not those great stars, not the intricacies of the head of a caterpillar, not the details of snow-covered mountains. I don't want you to see that. I want you to see today the one who is the creator of all the wonder that we see around us. I want you to notice Jesus, the one who is far superior to anything that we could ever witness in this world. You see, there's a tendency for us to feel small and, and get consumed with our daily living. And when we do that, we start to worry. We start to fear over things. I awoke this morning to the news that 30,000 oil employees went on strike. And how that can strike the heart into the fear of people. You see, when we start to worry over things and people and stuff, it begins to drag us down into the mire of anxiety and depression. But today I want you to see Jesus. The one who holds the world in its place. So that you can know, know that no matter what you go through, no matter what happens in this world that seeks to rob you of your joy and your peace, there is one who is far greater than whatever it is that's taking you down. There is one who deserves our affections and our emotions. There is only one who is big enough to handle all of our cares. There is only one who is worthy of our worship, and that's Jesus Christ. So today in our text, I want us to see the supremacy of Christ over all things, which alone makes him 
worthy of all of your trust and all of your praise and all of your worship and all of your adoration. And nothing on this earth deserves one moment of our time and energy with its fleetingness. Today in our text, we're going to see the supremacy of Christ over his creation in verses 15 through 17. And then we'll see in verse 18, the 18a, the supremacy of Christ over his church. And in the second half of verse 18, we'll notice the supremacy of Christ over death. And then finally in verses 19 and 20, we will see the reason for which Christ is supreme over all things. So let's look into our text, much like our day that we live in, where there is a plethora of teachings about the world in which we live and God, so too this young church in Colossae was experiencing a wave of new teachings. And some were suggesting that you had to be in a special group to have this special knowledge in order to be saved and to know who God was. The ascetics were saying the gospel alone was not enough, but you had to deprave your body of the things that are physical. There were other teachings on angel worship and to trust in visions and dreams. But the one thing that all of these teachings have in common, as well as with the false teachings of today, is this. They say that Jesus Christ is not enough in and of himself. That there is something else that has to be added to him in order for him to be complete, in order for you to have salvation. So Paul sets out here in our text to prove the supremacy of Christ. Notice what he says. He, being Jesus, if you go back up to verse 13, it is the beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is He is the image of the invisible God. This image here is not the image of, one, of Genesis 1.26, which man possesses, where we share the attributes of God, but we are not the same in our essence as God. The image is not similar as in different here, but similar as in the same. Jesus is of the same essence or being as God himself. He is eternally one with the Father. The word image is both ontological and functional here. It speaks of both his eternal being with God and his revealing of the Father. So the nature and character of God have been perfectly revealed in the Son. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says that he has chosen to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is not merely an example of what God is like as man represents him, but he is the exact representation, the same image bear the same substance and essence as God the Father himself. Now these believers would have known that God was the creator of the heavens. Genesis 1.1. So Paul's words here are very shocking when he explains Jesus' relationship to creation. Pay attention to this here because we can get choked up on this. And we can miss the beauty of this passage, as I believe the Jehovah's Witnesses have, by declaring that Jesus was actually physically born. That he is part of God's creation. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not what the text is saying at all. 
He is the firstborn of all creation. He is not part of the created order as if Genesis 1 and 2, He was created with everything else. Rather, Him being the firstborn of creation means He is the cause for the existence of all creation. And without Him, nothing would exist. Since He is one with the Father, then He too is what we would consider the necessary being for all of creation's owes its existence to Jesus Christ alone. The idea of firstborn notes not only his priority of time, but also his supremacy of rank. Not only is he first, but he's supremely over creation. And verse 16 shows us the proof that he is not created. Notice what it says. It starts out in verse 16 with the word for, which is the ground or the reason for this. He is the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So John 1, 3, all things came into being by him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We see plain, plainly that creation was brought into existence by Jesus and is not independent of him. Note that the work of creation did not leave, it didn't leave anything out. Notice what he says here. Notice the correspondence. Heaven, invisible. Earth, visible. So that nothing came into being that was not done by the second person of the Trinity. And then he lists four powers. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and powers. Noting that all powers, whether in heaven or whether on this earth, in offices of power today, none of them exist without Christ having given them that place. He is over all. But not only is he, are they by him, but they are through him. Christ is the agent of Genesis 1.1. Hebrews 1.2 tells us that in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. God spoke, and the word Jesus brought into existence everything through the agent of the Holy Spirit. So it is, creation came into existence by him, through him, and ultimately for him. It is the kind intention of the Father that all things be summed up in the Son. Jesus is the final end for which creation exists. It was created for his pleasure and for his praise. And in the end, all of creation will bow the knee before Jesus and worship, whether they want to or not. Because all of creation exists for His glory. It is the grand end for which we exist. And then look at verse 17. Reiterates the pre-existence and cosmic significance of Christ. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. John 1.1 in the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning before creation came into existence. He is eternally coexistent with the Father. Nothing existed prior to Him. And therefore, all of creation is called into being out of nothing. And in Him, all things hold together. Don't miss that. To me, that is a beautiful portion of text. All things, in Him, all things hold together. So not only did He bring it into existence, but He is sustaining everything in the world, in the universe, in His creation today. Whether in heaven or on this earth, Hebrews 1.3, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. Creation was established permanently in Christ alone. He is the one who sustains the existence of the universe. And our lives are held together by a single thread of His sovereign hand. It would be like me holding an egg in my hand today. As long as I keep that egg in my hand, it's secure. But as soon as I remove my hand and it falls to the floor, what happens? It shatters. The yoke bursts forth. That's what creation is today. If at any moment Christ were to remove his hand, we would cease to exist. We would cease to be held together by his power. The people of Colossae were putting their confidence in so many other things, in so many people, so many ideas, and they were giving priority to men, all the while neglecting the reality that those things and those people owed their very existence to Jesus Christ. What are you giving more priority, priority and honor to this morning? I can name a dozen or more things that we give priority to in our lives other than Christ. Our job, our stress, our worries, our family, our money, our fun, whatever it is in your life, you know what it is, I don't. But if it's anything less than Christ, if He is not of utmost importance and supreme in our lives, then our energies are being wasted. There are many times that we question whether God is in control. We see the evil in the world, the demise of our culture, the reign of terror, natural disasters that are destroying the world around us. And then there are the areas of our lives that are in chaos, our finances, our children, our marriages, our jobs. How can we go on in this world with all of that going on? And I know in a group this big, that's what's happening today in our lives. We're in turmoil. There are questions that we have that are not being answered about what we're going through in the world that we live in. And yet I'm here to tell you, 
this morning that there is joy and there is rest for you this morning. You see, Jesus hung the moon and the stars. He keeps everything in our solar system in its orbit. The birds are still flying. The fish are still swimming. The flowers are still blooming when they're supposed to. And Jesus has every bit of that, including your life and my life, in the palm of His hands, sustaining us. And if Jesus takes care of the flowers of the field, and He takes care of the birds of the air by the power of His Word, how much more will He take care of you and I? God spoke, and it came into existence. Why do we worry about the next thing? Why do we worry about tomorrow? When the God who created all of the world, all of the universe, is standing there saying to you, I have your life in my hand. It's going nowhere. You have no reason to worry. You have no reason to fear. We just have to see Him as infinitely greater than anything we go through and infinitely more powerful than evil and chaos and turmoil and strife and anxiety and we have to take comfort in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only does he have supremacy over the cosmic world, but also of the spiritual world, the church. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. It is only through Jesus who has redeemed a people for himself by his blood, that we get to participate in the life of the church. We have been transferred, verses 13 and 14, we've been transferred from from this world of darkness, this world of sin, the domain of the evil one, and we have been transferred into the kingdom of his glorious light. We are now no longer citizens of this world, but we have been made citizens of God's kingdom. That's the church. And it is Christ who does that work in our hearts. He is the one who brings salvation to us. It's not of our own doing. It is Him alone who regenerates and brings us to Himself and reconciles us to the Father. By the way, since he's head over the church, if we're not participating in the life of the church, then we're going against his very commands. And we're telling him, you don't have authority over me. I'm going to do life as I want to do it. I'll participate in the church if I want to. I'll do it as I please when I want to. That's not what he says. It says Christ is head over the church and he's given us commands and his word that we're to be a part, a vital part in the life of the body of Christ. Just as the head directs and controls the various parts of the body, so Christ directs the church. He has control over us, Ephesians 1, 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church. The body is dependent upon the head for direction. My foot cannot wake up and tell the head to say, hey, I'm not going to take the step that you just told me to take. 
It doesn't do that when my head tells my foot to move. It moves. Why are we still sitting on our chairs and not doing as Christ has commanded us? Why are we sitting back in our comfortable places and our comfortable lifestyles instead of evangelizing the world and reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ? He told us to do it. He is the head who rules over His body. The vitalization of this body, this church, the church across the world rests not in the number of people that we have here today or the programs or the buildings or the great music that we have. Our vitalization, our life comes from forever abiding in the true vine by staying connected to the head, Jesus Christ. It is through Him that nourishment comes. It's through the head that the mouth takes in food and nourishes the rest of the body. It is through the head that we are nourished through the Word of God. He alone has authority to govern His church. It is His people that He has died for. We have misplaced the idea of of who the church is subject to today. It's Christ. It's the reason we have dead and dying and misguided churches all across our world today. Many have opted to look elsewhere for direction instead of the Bible. They're looking at the latest church growth fads or philosophical relativism to lead their churches. And so they're implementing all of these things in the church saying this is what we need and this is what we need instead of turning to the Word of God whereby Christ gives us direction. No wonder we have so many messed up churches. They want to do it their way. All the while, Christ is saying, look to me. It is upon me that the church will be built. I am the head. I will direct you. I will increase my word for my glory, not yours. Ken has said it over the past few weeks as he's taught on elders and deacons. Christ is the head of this church. It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. I thank God for a church where the men are sitting under the direction of God to lead us. And they're not reaching out into the world, into the business world, and trying to figure out what can we do here and what can we do there to make this thing better. They're going back to God's Word and asking God to lead them and guide them as they lead His flock. Be thankful, church. Be thankful for the men who are leading us. Pray for them as they submit to Christ's headship and lead us to do the same. Then we see Christ's supremacy over death. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. This is where you can really, if you're evangelizing Jehovah's Witnesses, this is where you can nail them. Right here. 
He is the founder of the new people. Genesis 49.3 uses two words, firstborn and beginning to describe the one who has preeminence and dignity and power. Others have risen before Jesus did from the dead, right? Lazarus rose from the dead before Jesus did. So how can Jesus be the firstborn from the dead if, in fact, firstborn means he was the first one to do it? If he was the first one to rise, I believe this verse 18, the second half of verse 18, helps us to understand what he means by firstborn. It's to show his preeminence. Just as being firstborn of all creation shows his supremacy over creation, here it shows that Christ is supreme over death. This is speaking of his resurrection. He is firstborn because he is the only one to have risen from the dead, supremely victorious over death, to never die again. He rose, he conquered death, and he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. He is the first fruits who guarantees a future resurrection for his people. This was the Father's divine intention that Jesus would die. Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased the Father to crush him. According to Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God wherein he was nailed to a cross and put to death. His death was not just some random act of violence against a helpless victim. It was the very plan of God from the foundation of the world that Christ would come and die. But not only that he would die, but then that he would be raised from the dead victorious. So why put him to death? Why all of that? So that he might have first place in everything. If he doesn't die... If he came as a ruling king who established his kingdom never to die, then he can't be first place in everything. He can't be raised victorious over death. And if he's not victorious over death, then you and I have no hope. 1 Corinthians 15. So as believers... Redeemed by Christ, we do not face death as a finality because it's only the beginning for us. John's gospel says that we have passed out of death unto life. We have a hope when it comes to death that others do not know. First Thessalonians 4.13, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Believers have a great expectation in death. This past year in Peru, we got to be a part of an unreached tribe, second village of two people coming to know the Lord. First Christians that we know of in their village, 
joyful lady. It's beautiful to hear her sing. About two weeks after she professed faith in Christ and was baptized, she was bitten by a snake and died. Part of me sits back and says, God, what in the world is going on? And then I see this, and I'm like, there's hope beyond death. She is sitting around the throne of God right now, worshiping God in her native tongue. What's more glorious than that? Why do I want to hold on to it for myself? God chose in his divine providence to take her home to be with him, and there was a great expectation She didn't have to face death by herself. Her family doesn't have to look at death as a finality because Christ was victorious over it. She had already passed through death. Went straight to the throne room of God and is worshiping Him today. I guess part of me was envious. But what a glorious thing that that death doesn't have to grip us and death doesn't have to cause fear in our lives. If Christ hasn't been risen and he's not firstborn from the dead and if he's not firstborn from the dead then he is not preeminent over all things and if he's not preeminent over all things then he's not God. If he's not God, then there's no hope for us. But he did. He did. Amen? Y'all can say amen to me. Amen. He is victorious over death. Don't live like you're dead. 1871, he grieved the death of his son. October 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost everything that his family owned. In 1873, two years later, he lost four daughters. His wife, Anna, alone survived. That same year, Horatio Spafford, while crossing the waters, wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Is Christ that sufficient for you this morning? Is Christ that sufficient for you this morning? Have you come to the place in your life where you treasure Christ so much that He is this great pearl, this great treasure that you would give up everything else to know Him. Is He that great to us that we could come and honestly say to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That Christ is so infinitely valuable to you that dying, giving up 
everything that we have in this world, that dying, putting away this world's pleasures, that dying itself is gain. I have met many professing Christians whom I think would rather hold on to this life than to give it all away to be in the presence of Christ. Does death have a grip on you that brings fear? If so, Christians, we have no reason to fear death. I love, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It is gone. I laugh in your face because you have no power over me. That's what Jesus does for us. We can laugh and scoff in the face of trials and tribulations and persecution and death itself because Christ is reigning victorious over it and He's given us that power. Can we say let calm death hell or high water, it is well with my soul because I know the one who is far greater. Because I know Jesus. Somebody say amen. Somebody laugh. Somebody rejoice over Jesus. Please. I pray that you see him as infinitely valuable this morning. That He holds your life in His hand and there's nothing that you can go through that He doesn't know and He doesn't care for you about. Alright, I'll move on. Verse 19 and 20 gives us the reason why He is preeminent and supreme over all things. He says in verse 19... For, there's our ground, our reason, for in Him, that is in, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was not a psychotic man who had a death wish. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of the attributes and the activities of God are displayed in Christ. He is God in the flesh. Amen. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, because He is God in the flesh, He is supreme over all things. There is nothing that escapes His ruling. For in Him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the only one, the only mediator between God and man, for only God can satisfy the wrath of God. Not angels, not keeping the law, not supernatural ascent of knowledge, none of those things. It is God in Jesus Christ. And then, secondly, it is through Him, that is, through Christ, He is reconciling all things 
Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, whether on earth or in heaven. Jesus, or, or Genesis chapter 3 tells us of the great fall of man and God's creation and, and everything that he created that was good and whole at, in Genesis 3 is splintered and it is needing to be reconciled back to God. And it is through Jesus that God is reconciling both creation and humanity back to himself through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. Romans 8 tells us, for the anxious, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This earth is waiting for us to take the gospel to the nations so that the fullness of the Gentile and the fullness of God's people will be done so that this earth can be reconciled back to God. It is groaning for that. It is waiting for that. Somehow y'all knew I'd get missions in this thing. God wants us to participate, people. The earth is begging us to get to work so that it can be redeemed. Because God is reconciling through Jesus us now through His shed blood on the cross. Romans 5, we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus stood in our place on that cross satisfying the wrath of God against us. Amen. That we may be reconciled to God. And one day, Creation will be restored to how it was in the Garden of Eden. I started off this sermon talking about this amazing world that we live in. The creative genius that is our God. All of which is meant to point us back to Him and His infinite beauty and glory, and majesty. I pray that this text, I pray God's word today would fan the embers of our heart into full-blown flames of worship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this vivid description of who Jesus is, is not just for our intellectual minds, but it's mainly for our hearts. It's not so that we can just know who Jesus is intellectually, so that we can boast that I know these things about who Jesus is. Rather, these things are given to us, it is put into Scripture so that it would get into our hearts, so that we would look at Jesus and we would say, you know what, let the bank account go to zero. Let the sickness come. Let the persecution come. Let the fires come. Let the natural disasters come. Let death stand on my doorstep. I don't care because Jesus has me in His hand. 
That's why it's here. That it would grip our hearts. And not just our minds. I understand that sometimes it's hard in the midst of trials for our intellectual understanding to get into our hearts. Been there. Been through that. But we have a great God. We have a great Savior that is supreme over all things so that no matter what you're going through, church, no matter what you face tomorrow, no matter what you face in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years ahead, Christ is still ruling and reigning on his throne. And he still has all of that stuff in the palm of his hand. So that nothing comes upon us that he doesn't know about and he doesn't care about. And when it happens, know this, he's pointing us back to himself. So that we will treasure him more than anything else. That we will look to him more than anything else. We can go to God in prayer. We can go to Christ. Paul started out this whole heart information here talking about praying and his prayer for the church in Colossae. Reassuring us that we can take our cares before the Lord because he knows and cares for us deeply. And there is nothing that we go through on this earth that Jesus is not bigger than. I love that. You know, the bully thinks he's bad until he runs into the one that's bigger. And Jesus is bigger than them all. He's greater than them all. He is infinitely valuable, trustworthy, and worthy of our praise. The question is, is Jesus that big in your life? Now that we have seen that he is first place in everything, I have to ask in closing, is he first place in your life? Is he the first place you turn? Is he the one you call upon? Because nothing else has the power that Jesus has who can bring the world and superclusters of stars into existence. No one. No bank account. No job. No doctor is as great as Jesus. Let's pray. Father, today I pray that we have seen you, that we have seen Jesus, that your people that are gathered here today would see him infinitely greater than anything we go through. And all of our heart's affections and desires and emotions would be turned to him in worship and praise.
because of who He is and what He has done for our redemption. Father, speak Your words of life into us that we leave here today in deeper, deeper in love with Jesus and less in love with the world. That we would have a bigger picture of who Jesus is and how much He cares and loves for us as people. It's in His name we pray. Amen.